social history with absolutely no tasting notes. I'm Tim and I'm joined in the virtual pub by my drinking buddy Larry. What are you drinking and thinking about today? Hello Tim. Yeah. Hi. I'm drinking the Old Faithful today. Elvis juice from Brewdog. Very nice. Is that tying us into uh, a thought? It is. It's not Elvis. It's not juice. It's dogs. Dogs. That is right. This episode is dedicated to the little barrels around the neck of St. Bernard's. St. Bernard's dogs and their little, is it whiskey? Is it brandy? Barrels. Maybe we'll find out. To uh, complement that, I am, of course, drinking some whiskey. But nice. given that it's still very much daylight out at time of recording, rather than kind of sipping into the evening, I thought I'd just mix it with some ginger ale to make it slightly more acceptable as a prospect. Jim it. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm still about... I mean, I was going to say I'm still four hours away from that. I would never chin a whiskey. I'm still about four hours away from sipping a whiskey. So cocktail. Oh, I've heard how angry you get at people chilling whiskey on movies. Oh, it's just, but it's just so annoying when actors uh, drinking in on on screen is really annoying anyway because either they'll pour themselves like loads of what looks like straight bourbon and then just chin it like it's water and you just think no one does that you you would gag it would be an awful experience and the other thing is when they're drinking from coffee cups and you know it's empty i saw it last <laughs> night i was watching the new episode of line of duty last night and there was a scene where they went into a coffee shop and they've already got their um you know their paper coffee cups and not only can you tell it's empty by the way they're holding it because it's that sort of 45 degree angle and there appears mm-hmm. to be no weight to it but they even put it down on the table more than once and you could hear that it was hollow. There was nothing in there. And it's like, why don't you just put, if not coffee, at least put some water in it or something. But we can very clearly hear that it's empty. It annoys me. That would be like one of my requirements in my contract. If I have to drink anything on screen at any time, it has to be pure gin. Just a cup of gin. Well, actually, there is there is something you could, well, actually, it's not true anymore. I was going to say there is something you can ask for that's... Um, it would, in the olden days, used to be guaranteed to be real. Now you can get zero alcohol anything because they're so widely produced. But back in the days when I was an actor, if you wanted to drink something in a scene, you chose Guinness because they couldn't imitate it. Everything else would be coloured water or you know soda or something or wine would be fruit juice. But Guinness was the only one they couldn't fake. So you'd always say, I just really think my character would drink Guinness. And then they have to get you a real one. <laughs> <laughs> nice yeah. top tip there yeah exactly it doesn't, it doesn't work anymore because everything's available without alcohol anyway that's not the episode um <laughs> saint bernard's barrels here we go uh so where do i need to start i guess i need to start with saint bernard who was saint bernard um, a massive dog he was not a massive dog he was a person he was a monk no less an italian monk so probably not called Bernard, probably more Bernard. But when I say Bernard, it makes me feel like I'm saying it in an American way rather than a European way. So I'm going to continue to call him Bernard. Um, so he was of nobility, Italian nobility, educated in Paris, etc., etc. He was set up to have an arranged noble marriage, but he decided he wasn't into that. So um, jumped out the window of his castle. Upon which he was caught by several angels and rested safely on the ground. And that was the first miracle of St. Bernard. (laughs) I I have no words for this. Why is that the logical first thing you'll do? I don't like this. I'm going to jump at the window. 
I mean, all I'll say is I did speak to your husband on the uh, morning of your wedding and you didn't. So for me, it makes a lot more sense. Do you think angels would have caught me if I had? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think you'd have um, flopped straight onto the marquee and uh, <laughs> rolled off it, kaplunk, kaplunk, like you're in some sort of sitcom. Um, All right, so that wasn't actually his miracle. What he decided to do after running away, jumping out the window to escape his wedding, um, is he became sort of a a preacher in northern Italy, Swiss border, and he would go and preach and assist the travellers who would go up and down that pass. And a lot of them would have been sort of French or German people on their way to Rome for a pilgrimage. And he set up a hostel at the highest point of the pass in 1050. And so a lot of his works are to do with looking after travellers and also doing like peace negotiations in the region to stop people from fighting. But he set up this hostel um, and that's why he's now the patron saint of the Alps, of mountaineering and mountaineering sports like skiing and snowboarding which always makes me laugh when they have patron saints of very modern things but the uh, the hostel continued and in the late 17th century we see the introduction of the dogs hooray it only took 600 years of this monastery for it to get really fun um, so <laughs> the dogs are brought over by the monks in around 1680-ish. And um, they are Asiatic uh, mastiffs that have been brought over. Uh, and they you know, start to breed them as mountain dogs. At the time, they're not known as St. Bernard's. Um, the, the monastery is known as St. Bernard's, but the dogs aren't. They are alpine mastiffs initially. And then later on, they're just kind of known as noble steeds. And after that, they're known as Barry dogs. <laughs> <laughs> now, why would they be called Barry dogs? Uh, it's because there was a very famous Alpine Mastiff called Barry, who was one of the oh. dogs at, um, at the St. Bernard's Hostel. And Barry's a great name for a dog. It is a great name for a dog. In fact, he was called Barry Dimensionretter, which is Barry the wow. Barry the People Rescuer in German. Oh. He saved more than forty lives in his lifetime because the past was very treacherous. You know, people would get caught in avalanches or, you know, have accidents and risk freezing to death and all this sort of stuff. So the dogs that the monks brought on, they would go out and search for people. Um, and you know, um, like keep them warm and revive them and be able to bring them back to the hospice. They would do this on their own. Like the monks wouldn't go out with them. They would send the dogs out in twos and threes to go and do the job for them. And it was actually the dogs that trained each other. So the monks didn't even train them for rescuing. Sorry. Oh, dogs. <laughs> on cue. On cue. My dogs got mild. Then in 1800, there was this legend of the dog. Barry um and yeah apparently he was just he was so well known and famous that um after he he, I guess after he died after he stopped working he actually retired which is a nice end there's this really horrible legend about him being mistaken for a wolf when he was trying to rescue someone and being killed but that's not true um it was found out later on he actually did just go away and retire with another monk but since then there's always been a dog in this monastery called Barry they always name a new Barry it's like Doctor Who (laughs) (laughs) Barry the Ledge yeah but you can actually see him in the Natural History Museum of Bern uh, in Switzerland so after his death his his, um, body was passed to the museum his skin was preserved through taxidermy Uh, they actually modified the way it looked in 1923 though because the dogs then look very different to St. Bernard's do now. They were half the size of the ones you would think of now. And as I say, that's because they came as Alpine Mastiffs. There was a um, 
there was a real harsh series of winters from 1816 to 18. This is after Barry had retired, a couple of years after he'd retired. And um, it's put the dogs in danger, basically, and they had to think about how they were going to approach a new breeding programme after that in the 1820s. So they crossbred them with a bunch of Newfoundlands. And what they thought was the, the big hairy coats of the Newfoundlands would protect them more from the cold of the Alps. But actually what it did is it meant that the fur froze and clumped up. So they had to stop using them after that because they weren't as resilient in the Alps anymore. Um, but, and consequently it's made them bigger as well. They've been bred into certain traits. But yeah, so after they're known as the Barry Dogs, it's not until the nineteenth mid-19th century that they become known as St. Bernard's because then that breed is specifically associated with coming from the St. Bernard's Monastery. So as I say, they they go out and they save people, and this is where the little whiskey or brandy, unclear, um, barrel comes into it. So the idea was that they would go find someone as a pair, one would keep them warm, like lay on them, and they could drink the whiskey, and the other one would go off and get help. There's only one problem with that. We have no proof that that ever happened. Ah. Yeah. So, yes, they were mountain rescue dogs. No, we have no evidence that they ever took any booze with them on their missions. Right. The reason we think that that is the case is because of a painting by Edwin Landseer, 1820, where he draws one of these Alpine Mastiffs and his buddy, um, a Spaniel, an Alpine Spaniel that they had as well. So those two breeds. And one of them is calling for help and and laying on top, and the other one has his little barrel around his neck. So it was artistic license by Edwin Landseer, but that image really caught on, stuck in people's imagination, and we see it get reinterpreted. Do you remember a cartoon, like a children's cartoon, you might be a bit too young, in the, like, 89, 90, that had a dog with a little whiskey barrel in it? No, I don't. See, I do remember this, but I think you probably are a little bit too young for it. It was called Bell and Sebastian. And across the internet, I've seen people going, what was that cartoon with the St. Bernard with the with the whiskey barrel around its neck? And everyone's sort of misremembered it in a slightly Mandela effect way because it was actually a Pyrenees dog. It was a big white Pyrenees uh... dog with a, with a barrel of whiskey around its neck. But that comes from, that's a Japanese animation that was based in the 80s that was based on a French TV program from the 60s which is based on a novel and I think they've sort of taken the, the Landseer painting and run with it into this cartoon and now a lot of people in my generation remember that as sort of the reference point but slightly misremembered so you know given that there was no such thing as the St. Bernard's Barrels I guess that's the end of the episode so um thanks for listening bye Thanks. Cheers. Bye then. Chin it. Chin it. Bye. Pretty sure we can drag more out of this. (laughs) Just before I I leave um, the St. Bernard's and hand over to you, do you know what the collective noun for St. Bernard's is? I love a collective noun. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't know that specific dog breeds had their own collective nouns. Is is there alliteration involved? Because I was going to say like a busy of a busy of Bernards is good. I like it, but I prefer what it actually is, which is a floof. <gasps> no way! A floof of Saint Bernards. Oh, how yes. apt! <laughs> All right, well, that was all I had. So while I frantically try and think of something else to talk about, uh, do you want to pick up? <laughs> sure. <laughs> I'm going to talk about brew dog because um, I'm drinking a brew dog and I love brew dog. I love their beer. I love their pubs. I love their ethos, everything. I just am a complete fangirl when it comes to brew dog. Um, but I'm obviously not going to be so tenuous as to talk about it just because. It's called Brewdog. <laughs> sure. I mean, we've done worse, but yeah. <laughs> um, now, I'm going to talk about... So, they've produced a beer for dogs, but also, you know, the history of why they're called Brewdog. So, do you know much about the history of Brewdog and why they're called that? Not really. There's a lot of doggy 
type brewery names floating around, but um, not that one. Well, um, I think it's down to the uh, kind of when they first started operating in 2007, they had a dog called Bracken, and uh, that little doggy would oversee all the operations. I guess he was just nosy and wanted attention. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, that's um, he's always been an inspiration to them. Um, and it's kind of, it filters through their whole brand ethos. They have put paternity leave. So if you get a dog and you work for brew dog, you're entitled to time off to kind of make sure your dog settles in well. Um, they also have dog parties you can um, book in their pubs. So, like, you'd have, like, a birthday party as a kid. You can book a doggy party, which I'm definitely going to do as soon as lockdown's finished. It's my dog's birthday in... I always get this wrong. (laughs) It's the end of August, so hopefully by then we'll be allowed back in pubs and I can have a big doggy birthday party in Brewdog. That sounds excellent. (laughs) Um, But obviously being a company called Brewdog and a company that loves dogs and is named after them, uh, they were like, we're missing something. We need to produce a beer for dogs. So they did a couple of years ago. Um, they've introduced their IPA called Subwoofer. <laughs> um, and it was the world's first craft beer for dogs. Um, so they originally just started doing it in their Liverpool bar. And it proved really popular. A lot of people were coming in specifically for it. So they were like, oh, fine, we'll roll this out across the UK. So they have. And it's um, alcohol-free, hop-free, non-carbonated, full of healthy goodies and 100% delicious canine companions oh that's nice i'm relieved to hear that it is actually alcohol free i was worrying for a second <clears throat> <laughs> yeah you, you can't give the dogs the alcohol it's pretty as, bad. as entertaining as it might be <laughs> so off the back of that i started looking at booze for dogs really well inverted commas booze for dogs sure yeah so i found another one which was similar to brew dogs one called snuffle um and i like this one just because the way they romanticize it all uh because they said Snuffle is a beer, but it's not an actual beer because there's no alcohol in it. Um, But it's a beer in the emotional sense of the word. It contains no alcohol whatsoever and it's non-sparkling. But emotionally, it certainly is a beer. We drink beer with our friends to share moments, special moments, the best moments, to live, to laugh, to discuss and to sometimes cry. And the preferred way of doing that is with a beer. So they were like, we need to produce a beer for man's best friend. So they made Snuffle. Uh, it's made with beef or chicken and malt barley extracts, mineral oils, vitamin B and other doggy goodies for a taste that'll have their taste buds twitching, just like your pint does for you. And the best bit about these guys is that um, a percentage of all of their profits goes to dog asylums, projects and helping stray dogs, which is really lovely oh that's nice i like they've identified it's all about the emotional experience <laughs> not, not exactly yeah. what's in it i'm fully approve of that sentiment um but then i found the holy grail of doggy drinks um so it's a company called woof and brew i have actually seen their stuff on the shelves in the likes of pets at home and other doggy places um they sell like poor seco and doggy beer and mm-hmm. stuff like that. But I went on their website and I was amazed to see just how far in they'd gone. They've got like a whole range of like drinks for dogs. Um, so similar to the ones we've already talked about, they've got their own brew called the Bottom Sniffer Beer. And <laughs> <laughs> um, they also have their own range of wines for dogs, wow. which is called posh pooch uh so it comes in two variations white and rosé the white is called tailwagger creek and the rose is rosé is barker bay uh so they're described as a healthy herbal infusion that's non-alcoholic grape-free and made with 100 percent natural herbs so it's an infusion of elderflower nettle ginseng lime flower and black carrot wow i kind of want to have a try sounds nice the funny thing is i can i can imagine beer being you know lapped up in a bowl that feels fine that feels appropriate i can't imagine drinking wine out of a bowl though like i, I feel like you'd need to train your dog in how to hold that glass 
you know, in a in a very coquettish manner, maybe in a large brimmed hat. I'm sure I've got a picture somewhere of my lord trying to drink my wine out of my wine glass. I think he'd rock it. <laughs> I used to live with a rabbit that drank my tea. It would stick its head like right into the mug and try and drink my tea. My old dog used to love a cup of tea. <laughs> I'd put it in his bowl though. <laughs> yeah. A nice warm cup of tea. He loved oh, it. No, literally. This, I wouldn't offer it. This rabbit would just sort of sneak up behind me and then just stick its head in the mug. <laughs> no wine though, no wine. <laughs> yeah. Um so the same company, so they've done beer, they've done wines, so they thought, right, where where do we go from here? Um they do paw pops, which are ice lollies for dogs. Perfect for the hot weather if they want a liquor or a crunch. They do what? Uh paw pops. <laughs> ice lollies. <laughs> I thought you said paw pops. <laughs> <The dictate>. Paw pops. <laughs> no, not <laughs> Not Paul the Potts. Singer. No. <laughs> no, the dictator, Paul Potts. Oh my god. <laughs> I don't know which one would be better. <laughs> uh, it's the duet we need to see, isn't it, really? <laughs> okay, <laughs> sorry. And that, that could just be the backing track to a slow mo dog eating his Paul Pop. <laughs> yeah. Could you imagine Paul Potts and Paul Potts singing Ness and Dormer while the dog licks <laughs> an ice lolly? <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> yep. Marketing's easy, isn't it? Yeah, done. <laughs> um, let's move on from Paul Potts. <laughs> um, this is quite frankly the most ridiculous thing I read. I think I've ever read really in my research for this podcast. Um, so they're like, they're like, yeah, we've done beer, we've done wine, we've done not dictator, not singer, poor pops, and what do we do next? What do the dogs need? What's the answer? Herbal teas, of course. Mm-hmm. So they are the makers of the world's first herbal doggy tea bags. So you can take your pampered pooches to a whole new level so they look like normal tea bags and you steep them in water um, they contain vitamin, vitamins minerals antioxidants and uh, they offer as they say both substance and style using only the finest loose leaf herbs so uh, you're going to enjoy the names of them mm-hmm. so we have uh, lapdog souchon yes Earl Greyhound mm-hmm. and Bark Geeling. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Had to think that one through. Like, do I approve of that one? Yes, I do. <laughs> hey, I, I mean, now that doggy yoga is a legitimate thing, I can totally see the market for herbal teas. Because what are you going to drink afterwards? You can't just give them beer. <laughs> well, this website has a whole other bunch of like weird stuff that they thought of so as well as this range of drinks they've also got a range of like herbal tonics um they've got them to help with like nervous dogs um just every every kind of personality trait that you think of in a dog they've got these herbal tonics for them but the one i was particularly interested in i wish i knew about it a couple of years ago was the happy lawns herbal tonic which apparently um it kind of lowers the acidity of dogs' wee, so it doesn't leave burn marks on your lawn. Mm. <laughs> because I spent so much money on having my garden done about two years ago. They came in, they dug it all up, they returfed it all. It looked amazing. And now it's just half the grass is gone because my dogs apparently pee pure acid. <coughs> so um, I wish I knew about that. <laughs> Have they been drinking too many sour beers? <laughs> is that the problem should have got them a bit more herbal tea maybe. yeah exactly need to listen to this episode not the last one I did send it to my husband the herbal tonic I was like oh look at this I was like yeah it's a bit late now we've lost about 70% of the lawn <laughs> <laughs> it'll regrow I think it's a good purchase at any time <laughs> um, I stopped there because I thought it doesn't really get it better than that mm. beer wine Herbal teas, Paul Potts. <laughs> Fair enough. Understandable. <laughs> um, I thought of something else I can talk about. 
Yeah. Is it to do with dogs or? What is the other bit? I thought. Barrels. Barrels. If you're talking about dogs, I can talk about barrels. Okay. Um, before I do move on to barrels, I didn't really tell you much about Edwin Landseer. So I thought I'd just drop a couple of things in there because I said his name like you should know who he is. Um, but you will recognise a lot of his works. He was a 19th century artist. He his, Probably his most famous painting was The Monarch of the Glen. You know, that great big stag on the Scottish Highlands. Uh, very beautiful. He painted lots of animals that he particularly loved. And he, in fact, some of them, he anthropomorphised them. So there's a satirical piece of, uh, about the law courts where there's a poodle uh, there to symbolise the Lord Chancellor. So lots of happy animals and so forth. And also, perhaps most famously, he was the one responsible for the lions at the foot of Nelson's Column as well. Oh. So he's given us quite a lot. Like the famous stag imagery of the Highlands, uh, the St. Bernard's Barrel, the lions on Trafalgar Square. He, uh, he, did, he did quite a bit. Oh, and the related fact to that is because he um, enjoyed kind of painting dogs so much, the Newfoundland dog that the St. Bernard's were bred with to eventually become St. Bernard's, there is actually a variety of them called the Landseer, named after Edwin Landseer. All comes full circle. All right, barrels. So evidence for when we first started using barrels in brewing is a bit, um, a little bit sketchy because we have kind of art to represent the use of barrels in ancient Egypt from around 2600. But we're not entirely sure that they were used regularly for like brewing or so forth because often around that period and in that region it would be more earthenware pots that would be used for storage. But we do see some use of barrels then. We also see it in Babylonian writing, um, so after that. Uh, but the physical evidence we have is really with the Iron Age Celts um, and the Gauls, so Europeans essentially, from around 500 um, CE. That's when we sort of start to see the first preservations of Cooper's rings and staves and all the rest of that sort of stuff. And not only barrels, but we see it in Viking mugs as well. So they would do all the kind of little staves and they would be um, perhaps coated with pitch to make them waterproof and they would be highly decorated with metals and gems as well see we've got quite a few viking burials where uh, they've got their surviving little barrel mugs with them but they were they were highly prized they were not the usual kind of drinking vessels uh, but in terms of when they were used for brewing as opposed to just storing and transporting uh, we're probably going back to the previous episode 13th century with the lambics where they would be left to the open air and all the bacteria would uh, would come in and you know live in the woods and they would add extra flavours. Um, so we sort of see it really in, in records from then onwards. And, you know, the barrels, once they were sealed, they were great for controlling oxygenation because the wood is porous, so it lets, you know, some oxygen in to, to help um, the bruise mature and that would be affected by the amount of humidity in the air so if it's very dry then a lot of your water will evaporate um, from whatever's in your barrel if it's quite humid then the water won't evaporate but the alcohol will so if you've got something that's being distilled at a high alcohol rate then you want a humid atmosphere so it gets rid of some of the alcohol and increases the flavour and then whatever's lost from the barrel during that process is referred to as the angel's share. More angels in this episode. Yeah. Um, generally, it's called the angel's share. The duppy's share um, in the Caribbean, I think we might have mentioned before. I call it duppy rather yes. than angel. I've got some lovely duppy share rum here. Yes, exactly. So that's, that's what that's named after, is the bit that's lost from the, from the barrel during the ageing. Mostly, we find oak being used French and US but you you can use anything really the most popular thereafter would be redwoods chestnuts cedars and in addition to the oxygenation process from the woods you also get 
additional flavour so you can get toastiness if the wood has been um, scorched um, beforehand but you'll also from the wood get vanillin and tannins so vanillin is the chemical compound that you know makes vanilla taste like vanilla that's mostly where you'll find it but you do find it in lots of um, lots of food and wood for example there's actually a company recently that's been producing it artificially um, through um, what's it called <laughs> I've forgotten the term for it <laughs> when you alter the DNA genetic engineering um, they've, oh, that was a slow moment wasn't it they genetically engineered some bacteria to produce vanillin because it's quite it can be quite an intensive process and you know people are using methods that aren't necessarily environmentally friendly so that's an interesting development but anyway you get vanillin uh, particularly out of the oak and tannins so tannins are that thing that when you take a gulp of something, if your mouth goes kind of dry and a bit furry, then you would taste that it's got a lot of tannin in it. Some people really like it, especially in their wine. Some people not so keen on it. It is a matter of taste. But what the tannins can do, particularly in wine, is to help preserve the wine so it can be aged. So rather than kind of oxidizing and going off, like a lot of traditional beers would, for example, or like white wine in particular would, um, the, if it has some heavy tannins in, the flavour develops and changes and it becomes much nicer, but it also helps the wine stay preserved and stave off that bad bacteria that they don't want. So that's why you'd want to put tannins in besides just whether you have a taste preference for it. Um, wine barrels, actually, um, they will kill off because of that they will kill off certain bacteria that for example you would want to cultivate in things like sour beers so if you are creating a beer which is going to rely on maybe some of that native Britannomyces and uh, lactobacillus and other things you can't use a wine barrel because it will kill it off so instead you have to use either new barrels or bourbon or other kind of things like that while I'm on bourbon barrels, actually, that's one of the rules of American bourbon creation is it has to be brand new American oak, white oak. And it will be aged in it for two years, and then that's it, no more. By that time, it's kind of leached everything good out of out of the wood. Um, but they will get rid of them. So it's actually, a, a, the barrels are a byproduct of the bourbon industry in the US. However, everywhere else is like, you're fine to reuse barrels if you want to. Mm -hmm. So in particular, the uh, the Scotch, the Scottish whiskey, will import those bourbon barrels to get the um, American oak over. And it's great because it's then using the bourbon flavour from the barrels, but it's also recycling that wood rather than, you know, cutting down more trees, for example. And sometimes they'll deconstruct them. They'll take the barrels apart um, into individual staves and then make bigger barrels out of it. Um, so they might take five barrels and then make four out of them. And maybe they'll do some more burning or whatever to add an extra toasty flavour. But it has to be three years aged um, for the Scotch whisky, And it's also the same rules, I think, for, for Canada. Obviously, France mostly uses its French oak. French oak has a milder flavour than the US oak. The US oak is much more tannic. The French is a bit softer, a bit more vanilla-y. Um, there's a process that you will find in particularly something like sherry barrels called solera, which is an interesting barrel-based process, which is where you have a succession of containers that are filled over a series of equal aging intervals, usually a year. Solera means um, on the ground, I believe, oh, and that's because... I thought it was to do with the space of the sun. Yeah, no, no. Solera is, is Spanish. It's called different things in different countries. So it's most popularly kind of seen in um, in Spain and Portugal with, you know, the, the sherries in the ports and all that sort of stuff. Um, I think it's called per Perpetuel in France and Perpetuum in, in Italy. Um, but the reason it's, which will kind of make sense when I explain it, the reason it's called on the ground in, in Spain is because they put the oldest barrels on the bottom, um, 
on the bottom layer and then it will be like the year earlier on top and the year earlier on top. So what they will do is they will only take part of the contents of the barrel out to bottle or the oldest one and they'll maybe leave like a third in and then they'll top that up with the barrel above it and then they'll do the same with that barrel. What that means is if you've got the bottom barrel that's been aged for three years let's say then you um, empty some of it you empty, say it's the same empty half of it and then you refill it from the one that's two years old and so on and then you leave it another year it means that at the end of that year your oldest barrel is actually now three and a half years old because of mm -hmm. how it's equaled out so it goes on and on like that it, it means that for example your average age by the time you've been doing that for 20 years is five years uh, for your older one but there have been uh, breweries and distillers and all sorts um, winemakers that have been doing that for hundreds of years. So there's one in Sweden, for example, that's been doing that with beer. 100-year-old beer, it's called, but it's been doing it, I think, since the 17th century. So in theory, it means that you've always got some of the original drink that you made in your oldest barrel, and it just kind of keeps getting replenished. So that's that process. It reminds me of the old sourdough starter stories. <laughs> yeah, it's it's exactly like that. It is the same process, for sure. Um, barrel aged has kind of become a bit contentious as an issue recently because it would seem to make sense that if you're aging a drink in a barrel, it has to have been in a barrel. But <laughs> there have been kind of improved methods with just adding like oak chips into um, into your drink as it's brewing. So um, it would be called oak aged, for example. If you see something that's oak aged, it's probably been uh, chips that have been added into a metal uh, brewing container or cake, for example. And Innis and Gunn in 2017, they took this case to court and say they didn't think that something had to have been in a barrel to be barrel aged because the process was more or less the same. That case is ongoing. Many people do not agree with them. That is very petty, yeah. Yes, <laughs> it is. It's, uh, it's one of those things, I think, if you can call it wood aged or oak aged to define the difference between whether it's been in a barrel or not, you probably should just do that rather than try to confuse people. I suppose for them, it's it sounds more authentic calling it barrel aged. So mm -hmm. they want to be able to label it that, but not do all the work. <laughs> they do indeed. <laughs> you know, purposeful barrel aging in beers, like taking um, a bourbon barrel and then aging the beer, is fairly recent because although obviously barrels were used, as I said, probably from about you know five hundred CE. Um, as soon as the development of metal containers that would prevent spoilage and unwanted oxygenation and, and plastic for transport, as soon as that was adopted, people really got rid of the wooden barrels because it was so hard to control, especially through transportation, when things spoil very easily, particularly beers. So it wasn't actually until the 1990s that we start to get these bourbon barrel aged beers so i didn't realize it was that much of a recent revival because i was too young to to notice at that time but yeah it was reportedly goose islands bourbon county stout used a jim beam barrel and that kind of got the ball rolling on uh, barrel aged beers which now seems to be such common practice like everyone every brewer seems to have some kind of barrel aged um, oak barrel aged attempt at a version um, there's another thing I want to tell you about barrels, which is the sizes, just because I think the names are quite funny to learn. <laughs> <laughs> so annoyingly, barrels can refer to like any wooden container, as can keg sometimes, but they are also a specific size. But they that varies depending on whether it's got beer or wine in it. So it's sort okay. of anyone's guess as to how big a barrel really is. Um, but I'll tell you how it is for English wine. So it starts off with a gallon. And in Imperials, that's about four and a half litres. 
and then it goes up to a rundlet, which is 15 gallons, and then a barrel, which is 26 and a quarter gallons. And then it goes up to a tierce, 35 gallons, a hogshead, which is 52 and a half gallons. Hogshead, by the way, we seem to be the only country that's now calling it hogshead. It, it definitely comes from oxhead, from other Germanic language places. It was called an oxhead and we changed it to hogshead. Uh, then you it's get my favourite one so far. The hogshead. It's my favourite one, yeah. Yeah, well, hogshead. hold on to you because we're about to get to it. Uh, <laughs> 70 gallons is a puncheon or a tertian. And then once you get to 105 gallons, that's a butt. Yay! Hold on to your butts for 105 gallons. Sometimes it's called a pipe as well. And then when you get to 210 gallons, that is a tonne. A tonne of beer. Yeah. That's wine, actually. That's wine. Oh, yeah, of course. The beer, um, some of the same. So, again, starts off with a gallon. Um, in Imperials, nine gallons is a firkin. <laughs> uh, then 18 is a kilderkin. 36 is a barrel. <laughs> so, again, completely different. And then up to 54, you get a hogshead. So you've still got that one. Okay. But yeah, so many different sizes, very confusing. Um, they, yeah, they're, they're used in kind of interchangeable terms. I've seen it said that a keg is um, under 10 gallons. That would be a, a barrel or a cask under 10 gallons as a keg, but I think it's it's used in many different sorts of ways. There's um, a microbrewery near me, and during lockdown, they were offering you growlers. Mm. Yes, my local beer shop will see to your growler if you um, go in and ask. Yeah, they do say, come in and grab a growler. Mm -hmm. Ask first, always ask first. <laughs> <laughs> grab it right in the growler. Yeah. <laughs> That's, there wasn't even a pun there. He just said, grab her right in the growler. <laughs> that was a very lazy attempt. <laughs> Uh, oh, well, actually, you know what? One more thing I was going to say is that I learned that cognac um, is aged only in oak casks made from wood from the forest of Trancé and more often from the Limousin forests of of limousine fame. Limousin. Although actually we don't... Yeah, off of limousines. Although actually we don't really know why that's connected. We don't know why limousines were named after limousin. There's a theory that it's to do with the cloaks that they wore in a limousin and then the drivers of the limousines wore similar cloaks, but it's a bit tenuous. Who knows? How do you know this random trivia? Just off the top of your head. Because I remember everything. <laughs> which not. is a blessing and a curse <laughs> uh, alright give my brain a rest over to you okay um, so I was going to look for because like dog friendly bars are everywhere now I've already mentioned the brew dogs mm -hmm. dog, dog friendly and they have parties there um, and I just wanted to find like the best place in the world for like to go with your dog because there's loads of these boring lists online of, you know, best pubs in England. They're all just, you know, dog-friendly pubs. They don't do anything in particular. Um, but then I just started learning about how crazily good it is in America if you want to go drinking with your dog. it's They've just taken it to a whole new level. When you say America, is it going to be LA? <laughs> is it all LA? <laughs> no. Okay, hit me, not. hit me. It's not. It's 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 kind of all over, but um, yeah. Th so they have um, instead of dog friendly pubs, they've kind of mashed up um, dog parks with kind of pubs. They're all outdoors though. They've just basically got these enormous areas of land where you can go with your dogs, and there's like acres of land, or they'll have like a a, a pen or something for your dogs out the back. But they're all like really big areas for the dogs, and um, they kind of double up as a doggy daycare type thing. So you can either have your dog at your table with you or you can have the dogs in the kind of dog park area knowing that they're supervised. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, you know, they've really gone for it. They've got um, separate menus for humans and dogs. So you've got your regular craft beer and 
meals and everything for humans, but then also they do an extensive range of treats and stuff for dogs. Um, a lot of them have like live music. They have like rotating street street food. Like it's a really big outdoor event thing, and they're getting more and more popular in America. And there seems to be like a structure to them where um, people are getting like memberships to them, mm-hmm. so you can pay to enter it for the day because of obviously the the doggy daycare side of it type thing that you've got to pay for that. So it's paid entry. So you can pay a one-off to go in, or you can pay a monthly or an annual subscription. So people are like really dedicated to them. Um, and because they're getting so popular, they are just becoming bigger and better. There's one there I found. It it looks like my fav- it could be my favourite place in the world. So it's called The Barrel in Charleston, and it's dog and goat friendly. I don't know if that's because like the owners have goats or perhaps just it's a thing in Charleston that there's like a lot of goat farmers. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But you go on their on their website, the barrel in Charleston, and they've got like a whole section for the dogs and the goats. And there's just these amazing pictures of people having food outside, listening to live music, drinking craft beer, just dogs and goats everywhere. It mm. just looks amazing. I really want a goat. i just think how good my life would be if i had like an annual membership to a pub that i could just rock up to with the dogs sit down listen to music drink beer eat lots of lovely foods they can just go wild running and sniffing stuff (laughs) (laughs) oh i like it so yeah dog park bars in america amazing very cool um also, I just wanted to finish up with mm-hmm. a cocktail that is simple enough for us all to make at home. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. It's called the dog's nose. Um, Phew. I wondered where you were going with that. <laughs> the dog's <laughs> nose. Um, so it's a very strange drink, and it dates back to the early 19th century. Um, it was mentioned in the Pickwick Papers. Mm-hmm. Um, other than that, within Dickens's work, it, it's quite hard to find anything else about it. Um, but it's uh, a drink that's made with stout, gin, sugar and nutmeg. Um, but it's quite interesting. Mm. So you pour the stout into a glass and heat it up. So you could just whack it in the microwave for a bit. Mm-hmm. Heat it up for a minute. <laughs> then you add brown sugar and gin, stir it and then add the garnish of nutmeg. And that's your dog's nose. I would definitely give that a go. That sounds tempting. I've got a couple of people I want to tell you about just to round off. Have you heard of Annie Edson Taylor? I have not. Was she on the last season of RuPaul's Drag Race? Not to my knowledge. Not to my knowledge. Although she'd have been great. Um, So Annie Edson Taylor was a school teacher, American. She um, was born in New York. But her husband died during the Civil War. So in 1901, she moved to Michigan and uh, was struggling for money and thought, well, what can I do to make a bit of money? Now I've got no husband and I've I've moved. Um, Oh, these these nearby waterfalls seem to be really exciting um, on the border of New York and Canada. Is this Sorry? is this the link? Is this the link? She started charging people to go dogging. <laughs> she she was not the progenitor of dogging. Um, <laughs> I mean that I know of. <laughs> who knows? Um, so no, uh, she so she was living near Niagara Falls, and that was getting a lot of attention as a tourist attraction. So she thought, "What can I do? I know. I'll go over it in a barrel." <laughs> she was the first oh person to go over Niagara Falls in a barrel what a woman. there have been imitators since but she was the first one so on um when was it october the 24th she decided today's the day it's my birthday i am 63 what oh my god yeah <laughs> strapped herself into a leather harness inside an old wooden pickle barrel uh five feet by three feet um, and they <laughs> towed her into the middle of the Niagara River uh, on a small boat, cut her loose, and um, over she went, over the Horseshoe wow. Falls. 
She reached the shore 20 minutes after she began. Bit battered, but other than that, fine. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Unfortunately, it didn't quite bring her all the fame and riches that she'd anticipated. She had uh, a few photo ops, but um, it didn't. It didn't last. People get bored so quickly. That's like OG. Welcome to Jackass. <laughs> it really is. It really is. Yeah. Um, Fifteen people um, tried doing that, uh, recreating that over the next hundred years. Ten of them survived. Um, a couple who didn't quite make it. One was in 1990. A guy went over in a kayak. And in 1995, someone tried it in a jet ski. Didn't end with life for either of those <laughs> those two people. But, um, yeah, you know, I mean, sort of congrats to Annie Hudson Taylor. I don't want to sort of make a big thing about what a good idea that was. But, I mean, she did it. <laughs> it's quite bad to think that the people who did it more recently have used, you know, newer inventions like kayaks and jet skis whereas they probably should have just stuck to a barrel by the sounds of it when in doubt stick to a barrel (laughs) the other guy i want to tell you about is diogenes are you aware of him um no but i instantly just had a flashback to one of my favorite places in london that's no longer there (laughs) uh in tottenham court road on the corner before they knocked it all down because of Crossrail, there was an amazing kebab shop called Dionysus. Oh, right. Okay. Yes. <laughs> not not the same, but, you know, <laughs> Greek. <laughs> so. Now I want a kebab. <laughs> Great. Every time I mention a philosopher, you just want a kebab. You just face a philosophy, face out, think of kebab. Uh, <laughs> right, Diogenes. So he was a philosopher. Most, I think one of the things that people remember about him is he reportedly lived in a barrel. Uh, it's most likely that he lived in a, a large earthenware container rather than a barrel, but this was his thing. He decided that he wanted to make a virtue out of extreme poverty. Um, so he got rid of pretty much everything and would just, you know, live off the kindness of other philosophers, etc., and lived in the marketplace in this great big earthenware barrel. He was uh, one of the founders of cynicism, uh, the cynics, which is not quite the same as we might think of it now, but it was, but it was, it was kind of like cynical about society. So they thought that all the artifice of society was incompatible with happiness and that morality is about returning to the simplicity of nature. So he kind of preempted a lot of what the Stoics did later on. He was one of the students of Socrates, who I've spoken a bit about before. Some people said he was the, the true heir of Socrates, not Plato. Uh, other people say he was Socrates gone mad. Uh, <laughs> which, you know, kind of, yeah. He's But he's a really interesting guy. Um, he was... Probably the first to create a cosmopolitan. Sorry, not a cosmopolitan, the word cosmopolitan. Oh. Uh, Not the cocktail. (laughs) Cosmopolitan meant citizen of the world. Um, And what that meant was that he wasn't tied to a particular city-state. So he he said he was an exile and and an outcast. Doesn't necessarily mean, you know, I travel the world. It means I don't belong to any city-state, which at that time would have been very controversial because your identity was basically built around what city-state you belong to. So he um, he sort of eschewed all of that. He was the one who, you might have heard this story, famously Plato described, um, described a man as a featherless biped when asked to describe what a man was, and Diogenes plucked a chicken and ran up to him and said, Behold, a man! (laughs) So then they changed the definition to a featherless biped with broad, flat nails. (laughs) I feel like we would have been friends with him. Well, um, (laughs) he was was friends with with the philosophers who, you know, enjoyed him, but very very antisocial to people who, who didn't. He was very often described as a dog, as a barking dog, as a mad dog. Um, And in fact, uh, you know, that's where the word cynic comes from. It comes from kinikos, which means dog-like. 
So I've got barrels and dogs in Diogenes. Funny you say that. One thing that I opted not to talk about in this podcast was a drink called MD2020. Do you remember that? Yeah, it's just about. So that is... Um, I always thought it was like... Um, um, like a... Like a um, Alka Pop type thing, you know, like you have WKD and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I always assumed it was that because it's just in these glass bottles and it's really colourful. Um, but I did look into it because I thought about talking about it in this podcast. Um, and it's actually a fortified wine, according oh, to their okay. website. So, um, yeah, it was quite strange. But because it's very strong and people do drink it like Alka Pops, um, its kind of pet name is Mad Dog 2020. Oh. Okay. Yes, I know I'd completely <laughs> forgotten that existed at all. <laughs> um, I've got a description on why the cynics were like dogs, uh, written by a commentator. It says, there are four reasons why the cynics are so named. First, because of the indifference of their way of life. For they make a cult of indifference and, like dogs, eat and make love in public, go barefoot and sleep in tubs and at crossroads. The second reason is that the dog is a shameless animal and they make a cult of shamelessness, not as being beneath modesty, but as superior to it. The third reason is that the dog is a good guard and they guard the tenets of their philosophy. The fourth reason is that the dog is a discriminating animal which can distinguish between its friends and enemies. So they do recognise as friends those who are suited to philosophy and receive them kindly, while those unfitted they drive away like dogs by barking at them. (laughs) <laughs> I think they're giving dogs a bit too much credit there, mm. but that was an example they, they used he was like Diogenes said you know we should be more like dogs we should just sort of do what we want to be back to nature and forget the artifice of civility I'm, um, I'm going to start asking like dog then I'm going to start eating at the bin as of tonight <laughs> <laughs> one of the controversial things he did was eat in the marketplace you didn't eat in public you know you ate, you ate in the home or symposium or whatever but he would also um, urinate on people who insulted him. Uh, he defecated in the theatre and he masturbated in public. Wow, so, okay. I retract, I retract my comment about being friends. <laughs> I think you probably still would be knowing you. He was asked about eating... Uh, these two kind of quotes from him. When asked about eating in public, he said, if taking breakfast is nothing out of place, then it is nothing out of place in the marketplace. But taking breakfast is nothing out of place. Therefore, it is nothing out of place to take breakfast in the marketplace. And then it kind of followed with, but what about masturbating in public? And he <laughs> I was said, going to say. <laughs> and he said, if only it were as easy to banish hunger by rubbing my belly. <laughs> <laughs> I keep going back and forth with this guy. I think it's, I would be his friend. <laughs> it's pretty good, isn't it? Um, there's another kind of legend of him. And unfortunately, we don't have any of his original written works. He's one of those ones that we only know about from other people's writing. Um, but there's another one that he met, Alexander, Alexander the Great. Um, he was very keen to sort of get to know him and question him about his philosophies and stuff. And he, he comes to him when he's sitting in his barrel and says... Um, <laughs> you know, can I can I do any favour for you? And he's like, yeah, get out of my sunlight. <laughs> and Alexander <laughs> says, if I were not Alexander, I would wish to be Diogenes. Diogenes says back to him, if I were not Diogenes, I would still wish to be Diogenes. <laughs> and then, and then apparently later, Diogenes is looking through um, a pile of bones in the streets and Alexander says what are you what are you doing he says I'm searching for the bones of your father but I can't distinguish them from those of a slave he's like oh, you shade. know <laughs> he was not he's not a sociable person uh, there are also there are three popular stories about his death which I shall round off on uh, one is that he held his breath until he expired <laughs> I actually once in school had a friend who did that. He was not until he expired, but until he burst a blood vessel in his face and his face just kind of came out in this crazy, like, rash. It was There you go. It's possible. And he was very strange. So who knows? Uh, Another one was that he became ill after eating raw octopus. But the one that seems to be most likely, just to bring it all full circle, is that he was bitten by a dog and it got infected and he died from the infection. 
Lived as a dog, died as a dog. Gave dog us gave us cynicism. Dog like. I think that's how I might go. <laughs> <laughs> Infected in a barrel. <laughs> oh god. <laughs> anyway, um Diogenes is probably one of the funniest characters in all of philosophy. So um, if you fancy doing some reading, I would recommend Diogenes just for a laugh. Absolutely do. All right. uh, So our glasses have run dry, which means it's time to roll out the barrel. Cheers, everybody. We have a barrel of fun. Is that my Cockney accent? (laughs) Do it again. Do it again. Do more. (laughs) Roll out the barrel. I doubt the next was all. Very good. Very good. <laughs> Wherever I may roam, or land or sea or fall, you can always hear me sing in this song. Show me the way to go home. Do you know, actually, Roll Out the Barrel isn't a Cockney song. It's uh, Everyone thinks it's his Cockney song, but it was actually written, like, the... Um, the arrangement of it was written in the 1920s in Czechia. It's actually a Czech arrangement and original song. And and, and then when Germany invaded, they kind of picked up the song and wrote some German lyrics. And then during the war, everyone adapted their own version of it. It's like every it's in every European language and every country thinks it's their song that they created. But it was actually originally Czech. Check yourself, Cockneys. Check yourself before you wreck yourself. Yeah. Not part of the episode, just a bonus fact. I'll probably stick it at the end. <laughs> Please don't. <laughs>